0: There are no bad teams, there are only bad leaders. And it's very dogmatic, I will give you that. And you know a lot of people get kind of repulsed by that a concept, but I think it's a very powerful uh, concept to say that this is on me. I need to make this team successful. I need to give them the resources and empower them to be successful. And I think when you truly embrace that mindset as a leader, uh, there is no limit to where you can take your team.
1: From Exabeam, this is the new CISO a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Michael Meese, Associate CISO at the University of Kansas Health System. Michael served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps before transitioning to government consulting, then to the private sector. He's collected invaluable lessons along the way, such as navigating bureaucracy, leveraging relationships, and adapting to corporate environments. Now he joins us to share his philosophy on both leadership and ownership in cybersecurity. Whether you're managing an entire security team or your own career growth, true ownership requires dedication. So how can you forge a path forward and around red tape? Why shouldn't you depend on your company for training? And which excuses are most detrimental to a security leader? Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself.
0: Hey, Steve. thanks for having me. My name's Michael Meese. I'm the Associate Chief Information Security Officer for the University of Kansas Health System. I've been in the security and IT space for about 15 years now. I've been in the healthcare space for about two years.
1: So, Michael, I have to say something incredibly embarrassing. I've been mispronouncing your last name. (laughs) It's okay, everybody does. The entire time that I've known you. (laughs) I thought it was completely, I don't know if it was my own sort of Midwestern misinterpretation of the pronunciation, but yeah, I've been saying something similar uh, to mice. So
0: phonetically, it should be mice, but somewhere along my family line, they decided they didn't like that. And so they started saying meese and it's been that way ever since. so I don't hold it against anybody because phonetically, you're correct. It should be mice. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I don't know how I even invented that. And in I think I just saw it on paper. <laughs> so you, you've been you've been doing this for a while. How did we I, I'll put this on you. How did we meet? We, we didn't we usually when something like this happens, it's sort of a virtual introduction in many ways. We met in person to start off and then had sort of ongoing conversations. I'll put it on you. How did how do we know each other?
0: Yeah. So we met uh, almost a year ago now, or I think a little over a year ago. It was a, an event that Sirius, now CDW, uh, was putting on and you were speaking. And so one of my friends, Deanna, uh, who works for Exidy, was like, you have to talk to Steve while you're there. You have to talk to Steve. And so I was like, all right, I'll talk to Steve. And I, I came up, we struck up a conversation. I think I I ended up missing the next two talk tracks because we just kept talking for like an hour or two. It was, uh, it was really fun. It, uh, it was awesome to get to know you.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I, I didn't know that she was badgering you that hard. So the, for the listener, we had a chat in the hallway at a, it was a security conference and uh, it, it was a, a really good, I think it was in Nashville. And uh, we had a chat in the hallway about really the sock and leadership and getting credit for stuff and, it, it was a a nice chat, and you know we've been able to do some other work moving forward since then. But you know now we've been I said hey you know would you like to be on the show? And I think we can kind of continue that conversation or elements of it here. But yeah, we we end up missing you know I don't know what they even covered, but we missed some of the other chats and, and we're kind of hanging out in the in the hallway. Well, sorry for getting badgered, but I'm, I'm glad we're able to meet and have a chat.
0: Like I said, I appreciated her making sure we got to touch base.
1: So it was an awesome conversation. So I completely agree. So let's, one of the things we do, and I do this, I don't know if I've ever explained this, I probably have. Look, none of us are famous. And if we had, you know, famous people on the show, or if I were famous, we would have, you would not need to do this kind of introduction. But I think it's really important for the listener to kind of know who's on the show and maybe more so from their past and a little bit more personal topic. So I I always like to talk about how people got their start, you know, from where they came and, you know, how does that sort of color uh, the experiences of today? So we had an earlier chat beyond the hallway conversation, but you were you started off in, I would say, your professional career in the military. You were in the Signal Corps or some some maybe later sort of description of that. When what year was that and what were you doing there in the Army?
0: Yeah. So I joined in 2008. And you know, 25 U for any of my army friends out there. But yeah, I was a member of the signal corps and my, my technical title, I think was signal systems support specialist or something along those lines. But really what I was doing was doing a lot of radios, radio communications, making sure they were secure, getting them set up, et cetera. And then that kind of naturally dovetailed into providing computer support for our brigade and our division at times. And so I got a really broad exposure to a lot of different parts of information security and transmission security, as well as just kind of basic technology support as well, too. So it was a lot of fun for the, the few years that I was in.
1: Did you have the plan to go in to Signal core? Like you go in, did you know you wanted to go in a more technical track, or did you just sort of end up there? How did that come about? Because, you know, for those that I wasn't in, my father was in my uncles, you oftentimes don't get to pick. (laughs) So how did that come about specifically?
0: Well, so it's funny you ask that because so I was always interested in computers ever since I was little. My dad used to uh, build computers in our living room for people. It was like a side job for me to build these custom gaming computers and things like that. And so I was always interested in computers, but never really saw it as a career. And then I decided I wanted to join the military and Wanted to leave quickly, and so I went and took my ASVAB, and I got good scores. And so I had kind of my pick of jobs, and the recruiter was like, "Well, you said you like you like doing computers, right?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, we've got you know this large sign-on bonus if you go do this, and it's it's a computer job, and so I was, and it ships out in two weeks." And I said, "Cool, sign me up." Ended up not being as computer related right out the gate as the recruiter made it sound, but ended up really enjoying
1: what I was doing. So interesting so it wasn't completely as advertised then or what it ended up being okay no, it, it never is
0: <laughs> but uh, it was still a lot of fun and i still learned a lot it probably took about two years before i really started to get to any of the computer side of the job whereas other parts of signal core you know extremely computer focused this one has the uh what they call tactical communication side of it which is you know going out and setting up radios, setting up radio antennas, rolling with convoys helping with their communication, etc. That has almost nothing to do with you know, a traditional computing
1: environment. <laughs> I only laugh because my great uncle told me a story he's passed, but he was uh, attached to an airborne unit in World War II and jumped in on D-Day and he was Signal Corps. He lied about his his age and went in and he made the comment that when he went in, he was a lineman for the phone company. So literally just crawling up and like, you know, running wire and that was one of his earliest jobs he was a junior level guy and it's hey we need to run a wire from here to there and by the way between here and there isn't necessarily safe and so run the spool you know so he would talk about that a little bit and he he didn't do that for very long but that was my introduction to understanding signal core so when you mentioned this I was like wait a minute is that the is that the same so he was running cable and getting shot at at the same time.
0: Signal Corps encompasses a bunch of things. So it's a it's you know pretty vague to say that you're from Signal Corps because you know, you've got things all the way from linemen, like what your great grandfather was doing to satellite communications and everything in between. And so it just it covers a lot of ground.
1: Right, right. So so you you did that, that set you up and then you went into working with DOD, government consulting for a fairly long period of time. What was your experience there? Like, if you look back on that, I, I think you said you did it for around 10 years. Like, if you had to give a, a couple sentence description of your time, like, what did that set you up best for?
0: I think the thing it, it set
1: me up best for was to be able to
0: operate through bureaucracy. And that sounds depressing in a way. But it was something I actually enjoyed was finding creative paths towards getting through red tape and, and navigating complex political environments. And so I learned a lot from that, being able to find
1: the path forward when, you know, at first glance, it may not seem like there is a path. So this, I think, is an extremely important topic. So find the path forward. I'm actually taking, often I take notes when I do my interviews here. I know many people that are great leaders, that are managers, directors, CISOs, that it's more difficult to manage the politics, to manage the inner workings of the company than it is to sort of seemingly to fight the adversary. And they fail faster at the sort of the, the bureaucrat side of what the position often entails. So I find it fascinating for you to spend 10 years, which is a, a fairly long amount of time, and to be like, you know what, the best thing I learned is, you know, to operate through this, which is both amazing and kind of sad at the same time, but it's a, it's an incredibly it's an incredibly valuable skill. So break that down. Because I know so many people struggle with this. When you say finding the path forward, break that into a handful of skill groups for me. Like, what do you, what do you really mean by that? How does you talked about creativity? If you were trying to hire someone with the ability to find the path forward, what are the three or four things you'd look for?
0: I think first and foremost is the ability to build relationships with people. That's the most effective way to get anything done in any organization is to have very strong relationships, especially relationships where they might be uncommon to your position. So I always encourage security leaders to make friends with finance, to make friends with compliance, to make friends with HR, et cetera. Those people that you don't always normally think of going and talking to and becoming best friends with go become good friends with them. The second piece is to understand the rules very very deeply. Spend time reading through corporate manuals spend time reading through corporate policies etc understand the way things are because it can help you identify where you have wiggle room and where you might be able to been maybe some of the rules, you know, follow some of the processes and ignore some of the others, have a very deep understanding of of the way the organization operates and the rules that it operates in. And then the third that I tell everyone is I personally don't care for the term corporate politics. It's used to describe, you know, a lot of different things, but the way I've always viewed it, and the mindset I tell everyone to take into it, is there's no such thing as corporate politics. There's just the way the organization operates, and so it, a lot of it comes down to that mindset. Is if you think of it as this kind of weight of corporate politics that you've got to deal with, it's crushing down on you. You'll always resent it, and it will drain you. If you view it as just this is the way the organization operates, this is how things get done. Within any type of large organization, there's just different flavors of it in each organization. It becomes more of this thing that you feel like you can wield yourself in order to get things done. It's a challenge you take on rather than this boulder you're trying to carry along as you try to get things done.
1: That's a very jujitsu level answer for the third one. Like it's like use the politics in your favor, kind of thing. Use the. That's interesting. I and by the way, we didn't discuss. We've never chatted about this topic and so like on a lot of shows you might listen to people and they give a very witty answer but in many cases it's prepared and this was cold this is a cold question so i love this topic you know sort of the what are the assets that the individual should have and it's you know the path forward it's the relationships understanding the rules but to understand them so you can bend them just all as a recap and then knowing there's no such thing as corporate politics. Anything else on finding the path forward? I think that's an excellent sort of bullet, you know, in like an article somewhere, maybe anything else related to that? That's maybe even, a unpacking one of those three, a little more like an example that you'd like to, an anecdote to share maybe.
0: Yeah. So it kind of goes back to the, the corporate rules of, and Knowing the corporate rules and then building relationships honestly go hand in hand. And a lot of people don't always think about that. And it can be something very simple. So we could, we could take an example that I've used at a couple of different organizations. So I always make friends with my marketing people, marketing and corporate communications, because they hold the keys to talking to everyone in the organization and talking outside of the organization. And so it's important to have a really robust partnership with your corporate communications and marketing people. And if you talk to any marketing or corporate comms person, the one thing that their department lives and dies by is their branding guidelines, corporate branding guidelines. And the vast majority of security people never even read them, let alone follow them. It's one of the first things that I read within my first week or two at a position is, you know, what format are things supposed to be in? What color scheme do they want to use? What fonts do they like, et cetera? And so that, that way as you're building presentations across the organization, they're aligned to those branding standards and your marketing people notice those things. They notice them almost immediately that you're following guidelines in, in how you reference things and how they're built, how they're colored, et cetera. And so then when it's time to you know, leverage that relationship, you have credibility on the table, that one on the shelf of, yeah, you know, Michael follows our rules for everything else. And so in this one instance where maybe he's trying to send out an emergency communication and, you know, we don't have time to go through every single approval. You know, they're they're willing to allow that to happen because they know that by and large, I'm generally following their
1: rules. Interesting. So because you've taken the time to figure out what is their what some would refer to as their currency. And there's one of the things I'll often say is you you never want to make an introduction in a crisis, and and you are kind of describing in the example that an emergency notification that may need to be external, you know, that may need to go through exec comms, that's going to be externally facing. That typically sees a fair amount of scrutiny, especially in a crisis. So what you're saying is, if you understand the rules and if you've had the conversations ahead of time, if that situation presents itself it can be done with far less friction.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Now, you gave a very kind of a diplomatic example there, and a a good one and a relevant one. But what are some other benefits? And there's a direction I want to take this, but I want to see if you go there. Corporate communications and marketing, if you have relationships there as a CISO or as a security leader, what other benefit does that bring to your organization? What could it bring?
0: Well, it helps a lot, honestly, with building a security culture primarily, I would say is the the biggest benefit that I've seen across a couple of different organizations is often when you're trying to build a security culture, one of the biggest challenges you'll face is finding all of your communication channels and then leveraging them effectively. And so having marketing on your side essentially turns your training and awareness program into a security marketing program which is super helpful for reaching your end users, reaching your employees, but then also being able to tap into their expertise. Because we've often gotten feedback from our marketing people invested in the success of our security program saying like, hey, you know, you've been sending these emails, but you, know, you could also be, for example, the health system has an internal news channel they call tape 10, which are these like short little news clips and So they'll say, hey, you can go on take 10, you can show up at this forum and use this venue, et cetera. And it it really magnifies the impact of your program by being able to proactively engage with them beyond just that, those crisis communications as well.
1: No, I think that's great. You took it a better route. One of the things I was thinking of, depending on where you work and all the things that you've mentioned prior, there can sometimes be friction. And I know this from my past life between like, hey, we've got security analysts that want to share some research and they want to get approval to go speak at a big security conference. And it has to go through some of these organizations that you mentioned. And depending on the temperament of that company and, and the way they view all of what you mentioned, it can be difficult to get that approval depending on where you work and depending on these relationships. And sometimes it's out of your control In certain circumstances, I can tell you it's much more difficult if you've had a security, a major security problem as well. But it can take the wind out of the sails of a security staff if they've put in a bunch of effort into doing research and having something they're proud about and then having the strength to then apply and then get accepted and then to be told at the 11th hour that they can't do it. I've seen that too many times. So this is another thing. I think that all of what you've described, if you do it, as well as you've mentioned, that it could avoid those problems as well. Typically, there's also a legal sign-off as well that can happen depending on what you're chatting about, but I can see great success coming from doing what you've mentioned in that regard. Anything you'd you'd add to that or a point of reflection to that idea? Yeah, it's
0: an excellent point because we especially ran into that problem a lot in the government space. They tend to be much more conservative than the private sector. But you know, it again goes back to that building trust and currency with that organization. Is you know, when when you're following those rules, and you're building good building goodwill with them, et cetera, the the benefits of it show up in so many different places. And I think that's an excellent example of it as well. Is you know maybe you don't get looked at quite as hard for your know, your conference speeches that you're putting out or the research that you want to publish, or if they don't like a piece of it, they, they trust you enough that, you know, that's a normal sharing within our industry, which you know we're, we're trying to get better at as an industry. And so having that currency, having that relationship, having that trust just continues to show up in so many different ways. And I think that's an awesome example of it as well.
1: It may not be the first thing you try to tackle, but if you lack that, it was, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you, and I, and I, I don't want to go there just yet, but And I ask it for a reason, is is describing to the degree that you're you're willing to, just to describe your worst professional day. And there's there's a reason for it, and I don't want to go there now. There's other stuff I want to chat about first. But one of my worst professional days was this very exact topic where there were some folks, Toby and Vaishnavi, if you're listening. I won't share their full name, but there's a situation where I worked with them, had the great honor to to work with them. And they weren't super excited about presenting initially, and I said a goal we should have is one year from now to present all the great work you're doing. And they both looked at me like it was such a terrible idea because they were just mortified to get up and, and present. But we worked, they worked, and we kind of ironed it all out, and we got everything going. And at the eleventh hour, we were told no, and I was, I was as mad. I get mad even thinking about it. My voice is changing thinking about how pissed off I was. And there's a lot of variables I won't go into that led to it, but to see that pulled away from, from a staffer is just gut-wrenching. It's just, so especially in a world where we have to support our staff and, and help them grow and, and retain them and, and make them feel appreciated, it's just, and I'll tell you the response was, and I'll share this because it's, it hit so hard, and it it just shows how important everything you've said is. Is that I won't say who was, but that we don't see how this benefits the company. That was the one sentence response. Yeah, I was ready to fight. Old Steve was ready to treat that problem a certain way. Anyway, so this is all I, I share that uh, with great emotion. But it's it's something that uh, is a valuable topic, and I really appreciate you sharing that. I, I I've got uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about, though. Kind of switching gears is you said something interesting about government work, kind of a a statement you made. You might not remember saying this to me, but how the governance is important, but alone won't solve all your problems. And I think that that a lot of people may smile with that. Governance is incredibly important. If you don't do it well, you'll have GRC issues. You'll have fines and audits. When you shared that with me, and you may not remember the exact reason, but what comes to mind when you hear your own quote? sent back your way. Why did you leave government thinking that? And and what, what sort of painted that? And what then should you do knowing that? Yeah, it's a concept that I've expressed in a couple of different ways. But the core
0: idea is when you're in government, you realize that the government has, if they want to, total control of their computing environment, total command and control movement. You know, they can issue a a binding operational directive, they call them BODs, and make you do anything within any given amount of time. And then they'll give you the budget to go do it, and you have to go do it by said date. So total command and control over the entire IT environment. And anyone who has worked in government or interfaced with government at all knows just how difficult and challenging their IT environment is. You know, tons of end of life systems, lacking a lot of basic security controls in many places, et cetera. And so it really helped me to understand that they have complete governance with the, you know, the entire NIST framework and you know, their poems and all these different processes that you go through for the approvals to operate and just you know, layers upon layers of governance and paperwork. And the results have been not optimal. And so it helped me to understand from a very early part in my career, That complete governance or complete control over the IT environment was not the answer. You weren't going to get there by doing that. And you're never going to have that level of control in a private sector company anyway. So why do we pursue it as a security industry? We're always talking about, you know, if we just reported to the CEO or, you know, if we could talk directly to the board and get their buy in, it's always around this concept of if we could just swing a bigger hammer. And I saw earlier in my career, the government has the biggest hammer there is over their organization and they still can't get it done. So it means that we should stop pursuing that and pursue partnership and collaboration and investing in the organization instead, instead of trying to rule over them because you will never have enough power to make it happen and make it be effective.
1: That's a really interesting perspective. And you set it up in a way that's typically different fundamentally different than what's usually brought up, at least from what I hear. The notion of reporting and sort of the voice that you get with different reporting is interesting. So you're saying that that almost doesn't matter. Now, I, I don't think you're saying that, that it would be wrong if you reported higher in the org, but you're saying that fundamentally for running a security program, it almost doesn't matter where you report? Is that that the position you'd argue? It
0: matters to an extent. It does not matter nearly as much as our industry is focused on it. In my opinion, if you are not effective reporting to a CIO or reporting to a general counsel or a CFO, you'll be equally as ineffective
1: reporting to the CEO. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, certainly. I completely agree there. I think visibility, some may push back a little bit on visibility. I think there's many leaders who feel buried. But I think that your point is, if you are buried, if you're ineffective there, you may experience the same challenges going up, I I think is what you're, which I would agree with. I wasn't planning on asking this, but I feel like there's a lot of, everybody makes excuses, myself included, you know, back when I was running operations and leading big teams, and there was always something to kind of complain about. And some of it's valid. Um, you know, like you work for an organization that doesn't know all the assets they have. They don't even know all the IP ranges in the data center. Like there's things like this that you encounter. You're like, how in the hell am I supposed to protect this stuff and respond to bad things when this other group doesn't even know what they have, right? So that's, that's an excuse. But one of my least favorite excuses is that of, of headcount. It's hard to, to train. It's hard to retain but i've seen so many executives security leaders i'll say just sort of complain and say well we can't get anything done cuz we don't have enough people now if people goes to zero yeah you might not get much done but uh, i find that is a is a big excuse and when you were describing reporting structure to me it's like that's an excuse and maybe one we shouldn't use it almost doesn't matter and to me the staff retention and people sort of throwing their hands up saying that well I can't do anything because I don't have enough people. And then the third is we don't have any budget, so we can't do anything. I, I think I was the best and most creative in my life when I was broke, you know, living in a trailer on the edge of a cornfield, right? I had nothing. Uh, and it's amazing what you could get done with zero dollars if you were creative enough, right? How many things you could fix and live. So I think those are my sort of three. And they're very broad. But any other favorite excuses that you just hate hearing out of, out of the security community? Those are three very big ones, but any other nuanced or perspectives that, that kind of irk you from a leadership perspective?
0: Yeah, budget and people are are, are big triggers for me too. Because early on at one of the government agencies I was supporting, they wanted us to build a department level security org and gave us virtually $0 to do it and maybe 12 people. And so, I mean, we to your point we got creative we did a lot of open source uh, we you know bubblegum and shoestringed everything together and got quite a bit done to where we could prove the value of putting more money into it the, the other one that i hate is when people do not want to do anything until they get formal training to go do it i'm a huge advocate of training i you know always prioritize the training budget within my team etc but i think there is tremendous value in taking the onus and the personal ownership for yourself to go find, f- go figure it out until that formal training comes. Go create a lab. Go break stuff. Go figure something out. But it, it's kind of a personal approach that I use quite a bit is to just figure it out. And so it, it always bugs me a little bit when people are like, "Well, I can't do that until I get formal training. I can't even start on it." And it's like, "Well, yeah, you could."
1: Right. Yeah. It. I love training and and a lot of it I paid for out of pocket earlier in my career. And and to your point, like there's a lot of goodness down that path, but there's also a lot that can be learned on your own. You know, even if you understand the concept, maybe you couldn't get hands on. Like I remember earlier in my career, I was trying to get my first InfoSec job and there was a certain brand that the company used and I I couldn't get access to it It because I couldn't, like, you can't afford it. There wasn't a free version. But when I went into the interview, I could talk about the concepts because I knew the open source equivalent and I knew the concepts and I knew sort of the pitfalls. And, it, you know, that doesn't always work, but um, it's a mindset thing, I think, that that we need to make sure we don't fall into, especially for for newer folks that are really want to get in. I think there's a lot of benefit in just going and doing, right? Knowing that you might mess some stuff up, but it's amazing what you can learn on your own.
0: Well, you brought up another good point, too, about paying for training early in your career because I see a lot of people that basically outsource their own professional development to whatever company they're working for and so if the company doesn't pay for it they don't do it and I think that's misguided because you're essentially allowing the company to dictate how quickly you're going to grow what path you're going to grow in et cetera. And so I always tell people like allocate a certain percentage of your income, your own personal income into a training fund for yourself that you can go spend on what you think is important and you don't have to get approval from anybody to go take those courses. And I think that investment in yourself really pays off in multiples throughout your career.
1: Man, I'll tell you, it sort of sets a tone. Like I won't tell the, I think I may have already told the story on the show before. I'm not going to go there, but. I had a time in my life where I went ahead and paid for my own, and it, it surprised, it was expensive training, and it surprised the existing leadership when they found out that I had done it. And they're like, you paid for this? I remember being the only one in the room that paid for my own, and, you know, it's SANS training, it was like 5Gs at the time, right? And uh, I was the only one in the room that was, that sort of self-funded. And when my company found out about it, they almost felt like guilty in a way. And it, it all worked out, but it was mainly just, you know, I'm this serious about this sort of mission of my own, right? I'm I'm not going to wait, to your point, I'm not going to outsource. I really like that quote, don't outsource your growth to your company.
0: Yeah, just nobody is ever going to take your career as seriously as you are, or at least they shouldn't. And so I, I think your level of commitment should always exceed whatever else your company is willing to provide, whatever anyone else is willing to invest in, you know, is invest in yourself first and it pays off. And so I always encourage people, have your training budget, have your own professional development plan. Like, don't let your company own that.
1: Right. I mean, even, even if you just allocate a certain percent of your salary and maybe you don't have time for training every year, but maybe it's an every other year thing. And, and the other thing, you got to make sure you carve out the time to do it justice too. I mean, because it's a lot of extra, you think of the brain drain, you know, how tired, if you're in a good training, if it's in person, you're exhausted. Oh yeah. As you should be. Right, right, right. You know, kind of you you were you were talking about sort of this self funding and it reminded me of the improvise adapt and overcome obstacles, you know kind of the marine approach and kind of to that end, you made a comment to me just in general that that being in service changes or had changed your behavioral norms. Uh, I like this topic, this idea because I think that there's a great opportunity for those that have been in service to work in in information security and cybersecurity but many folks don't have a clean transition there's a lot of goodness that stays with you some of the, the best coworkers i had were uh, military but i think it's important for leaders to understand what that might be that haven't served i i never did but i had kind of had through proxy kind of knew some of the those be- behavioral norms by virtue of having a, a dad who was in what were the things that that you needed most help with or that you kind of saw as a difference when you went, you had a, a softer transition, maybe it may be unfair to state but like you went from military to DOD, DOD to civilian, which is, you know, kind of a, a set of changes, but what, what were those behavioral norms that straight out of service that, that you think the younger self would, would need some help with if you could kind of coach your, your younger self?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's some tremendous positives, behavioral norms that come with military service, you know, the mission orientation, the the rigor and structure of it, et cetera, can be really fantastic, especially when you're, you know, younger and kind of needing direction in life like I was. And and so from that part it was very, very positive. But then there's the flip side of it that makes it difficult for people to transition is the, you know, the flip side of that structure is you become dependent on the structure uh, in many ways this, you know, structure around making decisions and, our, our, you know, the chain of command on what level can make decisions. And so it can often be a crutch for people that they have difficulty letting go of. And then the other side of it is just the kind of behaviors of military culture that don't translate very well in the civilian world. You know, military obviously is famous for our colorful use of language and some of the off-color jokes we tend to make. And, Oftentimes there's heavy drinking involved, et cetera. And so being able to kind of learn how to function essentially in a corporate environment and still have fun and still be able to engage and connect with people, but understanding like what is considered professional and what isn't. It is something that is important for people to know, and then specifically from the leadership side. And this has gotten a lot better over the past ten years or so. But the military uses a very command and control leadership style, particularly in combat environments, because it is highly effective in combat environments. The corporate environment has moved very, very far away from from command and control and embraces much more servant leadership and collaboration, et cetera. And a lot of military leaders struggle with that in their transition is, you know, they expect to be able to come into a room and say, you know, this is how we're doing it. And, you know, they might have been a colonel. And so everyone jumps and does what they said. And in a corporate environment, you know, outside of a handful of titles, you can't just command people around and expect it to get done. You might be successful in a very short term, but long term, people either stop listening to you or you'll just get circumvented entirely. And so kind of learning new ways of getting things done and uh, new ways of leadership and connecting with people becomes really, really important as you're transitioning
1: out of a military career and that military lifestyle. I think, you know, one of my observations that I used to see, and this is back when I was starting off in IT, a lot of the former military guys ended up getting kind of pigeonholed into very specific Duties within on the civilian side, and there's nothing wrong with that being a an individual contributor. But as time went on, I started seeing, and I, and I don't know what what did this, but the folks I worked with, you know, there's there's a ton of dedication to mission and great leadership attributes. Obviously, everyone is different and everyone has different backgrounds. But if the right support is there, some of the best staff, team leads managers, directors, and even executive leaders that I've met have been prior service. But I I think that they all of them needed some level of support, civilian side support, making that kind of transition. And I don't know, it's it's a weird, I don't even have it fully refined in my mind, but it seemed like when I started in IT back in 2000, that most of the prior service folks I knew were just kind of in a lower level kind of technical position. And within the last, you know, the last 23 years, it that has flipped around really in a positive way. And I, I don't know what did that. I know that the folks I directly worked with over the last 10 plus years, 15 years, that were prior service, where most of them were in my you know, senior leadership team and, and had other positions, you know, that were sort of peers to, to where I luckily ended up. But it's, the mission element is very easy to translate, especially in crisis. I've talked about this on prior shows where if the shit is hitting the fan, a lot of people kind of draw back and kind of look around. And no matter what you did, no matter what your MOS was or whatever, you know, whatever defined you, those folks are ready to say, Hey, we got to tackle this. We got to get on this now. Like I need this, 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 and they're ready to go in and sort of manage the chaos. And that's just not one example. I've got probably 50 to 100 examples just like that, which I, I really appreciate. So I don't know what what the change is, but I, I am very focused on that transition at, at all levels uh, for prior service. So I enjoy the topic immensely. I, I think if there's is there any other thoughts you have on that that you look for or that you try to emphasize when you're trying to help people in, in this space, whether it's at your current employer or outside.
0: Yeah, I think it's exactly like you said about kind of helping them transition of, yeah, you know, there, there was a running joke for a long time that you don't get issued common sense in the military till you're an E-4 and you don't get issued good ideas till you're an E-5. And so it, it kind of speaks to the mindset of like your you know, your rank is a, a reflection of your value and what value you're able to provide to your organization. And so a lot of service members do get stuck in that kind of individual contributor type focus of, you know, give me a process and I'll go execute it. And in the army, there's a you know a technical manual for everything that outlines step by step what process to do. And so the main way I try to help people when they're transitioning is to first kind of let go of that, is you know let go of that mindset that you know you can't provide value unless you're in X Y Z situation and have a manual presented to you. But then still give them that mission to focus on, give them that that's what military people are used to is having a vision having a mission having something they're supposed to execute but then teach them you know that they can they can embrace their creativity getting there it doesn't have to be the xyz steps it doesn't have to be you know according to the technical manual you know get creative with it and that's when i think you start to see the the real potential of that the the positive learning behaviors from military experience and And how it can be really, really beneficial to their long-term career.
1: So, somewhat on the same topic, but last time we spoke, we were kind of on the subject of leadership concepts, and you made a statement to me that I really liked. You know, one of the things that doesn't typically get studied in leadership, funny enough, is management theory. And you even mentioned the book by Jocko, which is Extreme Ownership. Talk to us a little bit about that. Of what's the downfall of not studying management theory? and is it all worth a damn? Is there elements? What's the best elements and what's sort of the worst or the most boring? And then maybe talk a little bit about Jocko's book if you, if you'd like.
0: Yeah. So I've always been interested in leadership, it's been one of the things I got interested in very early in my career. I've been in leadership roles most of my career. And so I was just always interested in how can I do this better? And there's been so much Great research out there on organizational behavior and how people react to different leadership styles and and management styles, and it's really, really fascinating. I wouldn't. This is the nerd in me. I wouldn't say there's a boring part of it. I've yet to kind of find piece of it I don't enjoy. I I love diving into all of it. There's types and parts I disagree with uh, that I think are you know less useful than others, particularly in our industry. But I. I genuinely enjoy, love reading about management structures and and how to lead people. Particularly the Extreme Ownership book, it's probably my favorite book on leadership theory and this really core foundation to the way that I build my teams and the way that I expect my people leaders to operate within my organization. And I think there's a quote in the book, it's one of the chapters dedicated to it, but I think it sums up the entire book into a single sentence that There are no bad teams, there are only bad leaders. And it's very dogmatic, I will give you that. And, you know, a lot of people get kind of repulsed by that that concept. But I think it's a very powerful uh, concept to say that this is on me. I need to make this team successful. I need to give them the resources and empower them to be successful. And I think when you truly embrace that mindset as a leader, uh, there is no limits to where you can take your team, and I think the experience your team has will be dramatically different than you know, going back to your earlier point. Than if you're sitting around making excuses about why you can't do this or why so and so isn't successful, it's all because of you. And if you own that and really own it, it's it's a very empowering feeling once you get back kind of past kind of the uh, the shock of it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love that, that quote, that statement, that idea. For me, the one thing we have to make sure we avoid is that there's a lot of people who might say that, who might read Jocko's book, who might even agree in conversation. But then I will ask somebody if they're heading down this path, the question I, I then have is how far are you willing to go? You know, My dad used to say, are you willing to pay the price? And to this, to this example, so if you're going to have this extreme ownership How far are you willing to go? Like, how far are you willing to define what you own? How vocal are you going to be about that in in your organization? What are you willing to do in particular? You talk about, you know, people leaders. How far are you willing to go to protect them? Are you willing to give your vacation up for them? Are you willing to give your bonus up for them? Are you willing to, to sacrifice maybe your job or put that on the line for them? Those are all seemingly extreme examples but all things that i have done in my past personally because of that notion of of ownership and also then the folks know and i've said this on the show before but it's tangent but it's a, it's an element of servant leadership i believe that we need people who are willing to innovate and take risks and to do so without fear in order to have any kind of a shot against the adversary period and if they don't have somebody who's committed to the degree that we've discussed you're probably going to have, you could have a good team, but it may lean more toward mediocre in my opinion. So I really love the fact that you brought all this up. Like this is gold status stuff in my book. So I love this. I, I mean, any, how did you find Jocko's book? Let me ask you that. How did it find its way on your radar?
0: I don't remember exactly how I found it. It might have been through one of my mentors, if I remember correctly. I have a good friend, Carrick Stanwick, uh, who I met while I was uh, doing government consulting work. And he just kind of started out as friends. And, and then he mentored me over the past several years. And uh, he brings a lot of books to my attention. We have very similar views on leadership. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure it came
1: through him. Well, credit to him uh, and credit to Jocko. Uh, I had a chance to actually see him speak and I got the book for free. Yes, amazing. I think it's even signed. I was actually, so I've got my my bookshelf in behind me and I was actually squatting down looking to try to see if I could find it while you were speaking. So you share books, you get recommendations from friends and mentors. Is there another book that's on your radar that may or may not even be related that you'd recommend? Anything that's on your mind right now in addition to Jocko?
0: Yeah, so I've become a, a big fan. Uh, it's not a book, but it's a podcast that I listen to called Executive Tools. That is, you know, all about kind of being a better leader, being a better executive, et cetera. So that's one of my weekly lessons. It has nothing to do with security at all. Just, you know, being a better leader. And then one of my other favorite books is "What Got You Here Won't Get You There," that really helps people to embrace that mindset of going from I was responsible for just me or maybe just me and a small team of people to now I'm in charge of a department. I'm a couple layers removed from where the work actually happens and being able to, to embrace that and then strategies to be successful.
1: One of my favorites still remains, I'll give one and then we'll we have one more question for you, is probably Eat, uh, Leaders Eat Last by uh, Simon. Is, is, uh, it's, it's older, it's been out a while, but I, I love that book. I love the ideas in it. We could record for much longer, but we're, we're very much at time. Michael, I've got one more question for you, and it's uh, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO. Michael, what does being a new CISO mean to you?
0: To me, I think it's for our CISOs to recognize that they are no longer security practitioners, that they are business executives, and that their focus and the way that they operate needs to be more aligned as a business executive than as a security practitioner. You're no longer in a technical role. You're no longer in a security role. Your job is to enable the security organization within the larger organization. And I think that the more security evolves as an industry, the more CISOs will start to recognize and embrace that and kind of let go of a lot of the past expectations around what a CISO actually is.
1: An executive position that's It's being redefined and maturing and great examples given by you today. I really appreciate all of what you shared with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Steve. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.